Welcome to Cornerstone Reformed Baptist Church. Thank you for using and sharing our resources. What you're about to hear is God's Word from one of our teaching elders. We trust that God's Word will inspire, instruct, and bless you. For further teachings or information on our ministry, please visit us on our website at cornerstonerbc.com. That's cornerstonerbc.com. Good afternoon. How's everyone doing this afternoon? Very good. God is good. Amen. Do you guys, I don't know if you are, if this church is sufficiently liturgical, but if I said God is good, what would be your instinctive reply? God is good all the time. There we go. One. Very good. And if I said all the time, you might be prompted to say, very good. So two, there's literally two. Just do I hold you to blame? What's going on, brother here? Can we, can, can we do it? Would that be all right? Can we say, I say God is good. I want you to say all the time because it's true, right? And the guy with the mic told us to, so that's two good reasons. And then when I say all the time, why don't you go ahead and say God is good. So here we go. God is good and all the time. That's kind of an old, pretty cliche Christianism, but one that reminds us of the the perpetual goodness of our holy, gracious God. We're going to jump to our New Testament here this afternoon. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 10. I was reflecting earlier about all the different texts that I've really felt just guided to and led to speak from. I've served here at Cornerstone over the previous few months. I think we've been in Peter at least twice from my memory. Maybe it's only once, but I think twice. And uh, today we'll be jumping back into chapter 2, verses 9 to 10. I want to say something before we dive into this. Uh, just two verses here this afternoon. When I first came to faith, I was, uh, I, was, I was really green, right? I didn't grow up in a Christian home or with Christian family, not even Christian friends or neighbors. When I came to faith, as far as I could tell, I was pretty much the first Christian that I'd ever met up until that point. It was a very bleak upbringing. I was about 16 years of age. I was so green. I remember one time being in a church service and not knowing how anything really works, how, how the formalities you know, go. And I remember looking at my Bible because I heard someone say that, uh, that David wrote a piece of scripture. So the preacher said that like probably it was a, a psalm, right? There's no guesswork here today. You're all well-seasoned believers. But I didn't know that. And so I, I spent the entire sermon finding the book of David, trying to find David somewhere. I could find Matthew and Luke. I even found a, a, a Daniel. There was no David. I was sure that my Bible was deficient somehow and someone had skipped out the book of David in, uh, in my book. But I remember just coming to faith and I have to admit as uh, some context to this, it was a church that really didn't have much of a high view of Scripture or, or even, even gospel proclamation. I'm not trying to criticize, but that's really, that's really the nature of the church that I found myself in. And I remember going to the youth ministry. I think it was a Saturday night meeting, more, more of a concert than, uh, than a Bible study or, or a discipleship program. And they were studying this passage, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and ten, and since then, every time I've come to it, or I felt led of the Lord to, to preach from it or teach from it, I always have this kind of this I don't know this latent feelings and memories about my earliest time as a Christian, trying to work out 
what is actually being spoken of because I can assure you all of the content that the youth pastor was conveying really didn't have any relevance to the text. So we're going to ask God for grace today that we would understand this passage as His Holy Spirit has inspired His Apostle to bless and bestow it to us today. So without further ado, First Timothy, uh, sorry, First Peter chapter 2 verses 9 to 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy." May God bless this reading to our souls today. It is His inerrant and inspired Word. One of the challenges I think that I had as I go back to kind of that story of my first Christian experience was was very much that the church and, and the youth pastor and the entire culture and environment that this passage was trying to be taught from was very much ingrained with the individualism of our age. There's only one thing I remember. We're going back many years. I'm not even going to hazard a guess. Many years. I think I was 16 when I first came to faith. But what is certain is I remember week in and week out, the youth pastor would read this passage, and then he kept trying to make it all about me. And I knew nothing. I knew no better except that I knew for certain this verse was not about me as an individual. That's not Peter's focus. Peter's focus is the collective identity of the people of God. The holy and the honorable and the grace-filled and the mercy-saturated gathering and collection of the, of the called out from the world, the people stamped with the imprint of the name of Christ. That is the holy people that Peter is referring to. Now, much can be said, of course, on an individual level, about our new identity in Christ. Now, 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 some people here today, you would have maybe come to faith out of an environment similar to mine where there wasn't really much of a Christian background. And, and so your conversion is quite dramatic. It really is, a, it really is kind of a, a darkness to, to light experience. And you remember that. And then others of you have come to find Jesus through the ordinary means of being raised in a good Christian home, being brought along to a good Christian church, having the Bible read to you, and your parents would pray with you. And it maybe wasn't quite so dramatic. But one way or another, the new identity that we have in Christ is always from sinner to saint. Especially insofar as God sees us. What does Paul say in Ephesians 2? We were by nature children of wrath, that's the collective that we belong to. But now we've been called out. Now we've been drawn into this relationship with Christ. We were rebels to God. Now we're heirs with Christ. We were bound for hell. Now we have been secured for the glorious inheritance of heaven. We were pawns of Satan. That's what it means to be children of wrath. And that's what it means to be under the control of the passions of our flesh and the waywardness of the world and the control of Satan. That was our identity. Now, agents of grace and of God. But Peter's focus here, as I've already labored to say, is not about individual identity. Peter could have said all those things and many more things he could have, he could have alluded to to speak to personal identity. However, it's something that maybe we don't speak often enough about, and that is, what is our identity as the people, plural, as not just the gathering, not just the assembly which we are and we're privileged to participate in today, 
But what about who we are when we make up part of the people of God, part of the family of God? What happens is, and maybe we don't, maybe we don't quite know this as, as, as strongly as we should, or we don't feel this as strongly as we should, we are all a product of generations of individuality. That's this generation. You know, it, it, it's not a mistake that the things that are market and the things that sell all start with the letter I, right? It's, a, it's an iPad and it's, it's iMusic and it's an iPhone. It's all about me. I have to be self-absorbed or I've been promised by the world I won't find contentment. And the last place we know you'll find contentment is in you. We suffer from the individuality that permeates our world, that permeates our culture. Now, this text and we've just read together verse 9 and 10 of 1 Timothy 2, is written, of course, in its initial context to first century Christians, who no doubt did not quite suffer that overwhelming burden of being products of generations of individualism. This would have been overwhelmingly good news. Whereas for us, we need to do a little bit of work. Now, why? Let's Let's just pause on the trajectory there and ask, why would this have been received as overwhelmingly good news? Why does this sound so good? Now, initially, we should say that in the ancient Near East, it was dominated, life was dominated by lack, famine, and instability. This meant, this meant that if you weren't operating in some kind of a collective group, then with vulnerability, was it, your vulnerability was ex- exponentially increased and your life expectancy was drastically shortened. That's just simply the reality of the first century world. If you couldn't say that you belonged to some collective, some gathering, some groups, even as you traveled, people in the ancient world didn't travel in ones and twos. They traveled in caravans. They traveled in larger groups, and they sought to protect each other and belong to that which was the collective. You see, for a villager living in the first century, one of the many people that would have got this epistle from the Apostle Peter, for any one of them, they knew they knew exactly what experience and life was like, maybe firsthand or because grandma, grandpa, mom and dad told stories. They didn't know any moment in their day or their life when over the distant hills would march a foreign army whom they've literally never heard the name of, taking you and everything you hold dear as their possession. We don't really live in that world, right? We can have wars that erupt tragically on the other side of the globe. And because of the instant nature of media and smartphones and social media, we find out right away. But in this world, sometimes the first time you heard that a risk was imminent was when that threat was immediate. In the ancient Near East, it was a world dominated by death. And as such, seeing your identity as belonging to a participation of a larger group was a way to understand that your life had more value than its individual existence. We don't have that today. Life expectancies continue to increase. We keep getting told by not just culture, but but media and those that keep getting a voice and getting platform in the the nature of politicians or athletes or rock stars or whatever it is. We keep getting driven this idea that it's all about you. Are you happy? Have you taken some me time today? Like even that phrase, have you taken some me time today, would have been comedically absurd to anyone living outside this generation. Go back a hundred years. There's no, I remember hearing the historian Carl Truman talk about this and he said, you can usually work out what generation or century people live in by how they talk about their devotions. If they say, I have some quiet time, 
They're living in a very modern, very isolated world because there is no one before the 1800s that had the luxury of quiet time. You shared your one room, mud hut, with literally every member of the family that has your last name and all the goats and the chickens and every... Good luck with your precious quiet time. This is the reality. It should be said, the majority of these Christians that Peter is writing to have come out of social settings, family groups and economic classes that were the envy of no one. The lowest, the poorest, the the considered to be the least, the lowly, the despised. Nothing more than social fodder for the elites. Most of these Christians of the first century, very few of them at all could boast any kind of pedigree or a family name. It's even absurd. You probably don't feel the thrust and the force of this. Next time you're reading the book of Acts and someone like Paul or Luke, speaking of Paul, says, I'm a Roman citizen, you should put your Bible down and just be stunned for a moment that that's even a reality. Roman citizenship, just before Paul came on the scene, was already taken away from literally everyone in the Roman world, unless you had copious amounts of money, or your family had done some elaborate favor for the empire, like like sponsor a, a Caesar shrine or something like that. The fact that Paul is boasting it is quite staggering. This is the reality. The overwhelming majority of Christians in the first century, dare I say it, the first few centuries, were the lowest, the least the most despised, they were often considered of no more worth than slaves and fodder in times of war. Now, learning that, these Christians, we're not them, right? We, 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 come, from, we come from middle classes, maybe upper middle classes. We come from homes where there is more than one room and it's not filled with chickens and, uh, you know, goats, right? Like, we, we live in existences that are quite sanitized and quite clean and quite healthy, and it starts to remove from us any, any ability to get traction with a verse like this. When these Christians, the first century believers, had read, you can imagine all of these churches around, the, around Asian Minor, these Roman provinces that, that Peter writes to in Cappadocia, Bithynia, Asia, and Galatia, and so on and so forth. When they learned that in God's eyes they have now been grafted into a new group, a new class, a new society, it would have been overwhelmingly good news. I like to imagine that as, as this letter of Peter began to circulate around all these churches, and every time the person that would get up and read this letter from the, the great apostle, the apostle that, that met and spoke and interacted with Jesus himself, that, that apostle that was on the Mount of Transfiguration, it is Peter. When this letter was read, at this moment, the reader might have had to take a moment of pause. It would have been, people would have been enraptured with joy. What happens to us? Fast forward year 2023, we read these two verses and our brains, like it or not, what we are prone to want to do is wonder how this speaks to us as individuals. And if nothing else reveals to you the bankruptcy of the culture of our day, that alone should be it. So despite, even despite that, the overwhelming individuality of our modern Western culture, people still anchor so much of their identity So much of their identifiability as belonging to some class or some group. Sometimes this collective identity is associated with maybe its culture or ethnicity, nationality, even locale. I lived in the U.S. just recently for a few years. And you know what took me a long time to get used to? That Americans will take pride in their their phone area code. I'm just going to let that sit for a minute. Like, 
Like in Australia, everyone's, everyone's mobile phone number is like 04, right? Is that still true? I'm pretty sure that's still true. In America, you have a three-digit code identifying your locality on every mobile phone. So people will introduce themselves as, hi, I'm Craig from 936. That was my area code when we lived in the U.S. I had no idea what people were saying for months. I had no idea why. I thought it can't, be an area, it can't be an area code like a zip code or a postcode. It's too short. What are we talking about? Now that I've said that, some of you are going to go hear pop culture songs. You're going to hear people say things like, I represent the 686 or something dumb like that. You're going to know it's just your phone code. How absurd. Sometimes people crave belonging so deeply, despite our modern culture's drive to eradicate that sense, they'll identify with things that are maybe good, maybe wholesome, or maybe not so good. Let me give you some examples of ones that I've heard over the last five or so years. I'm Texan. You know, Texans will tell you that before they'll tell you they're American. You just have to work it out. I'm Texan. Here's one. I'm Republican. Here's one. I'm anti-vax. That's my, it's who I am. That's who I belong to. Or another one. I'm a public servant. I'm a Queenslander. Maybe in even more unwholesome ways. Someone says, I'm a, I'm a gangster. I belong to the Crips or the Bloods or some identifiable group of crime and malcontent. Or I don't know, maybe on the more comedic end of the scale, I'm a flat earther, right? Okay, been nice talking to you. Why? Thank you, one person. Very good, very good. I'll, we'll, we'll warm you up. Who are we as a people? This is the question. How are we identifying our collective thoughts, feelings? Our groupings. How do we see ourselves? Now, for us in this room, it's probably most natural to say, I, I, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I, I belong to a church. I belong to a people. But having a robust sense of what we're proclaiming when we say that is really often unspoken. It's important because we spoke about earlier social dynamics. I was reading just week the historian John Pollock. He wrote a biography on the Apostle Paul. If you've never read John Pollock's Apostle Paul, I think I quoted that last time I was here, and I was reading it again. I, I have to read books five times. I don't know if anyone else is like that. I will get to the start of a book. I will love it for the first two chapters. Then I realize I'm at the end, and I forgot what the ten chapters between said. No one else does that. I know that's just me, so I've got to go back to the start and read it again, and then read it again. And it's this amazing reality, as Pollock was talking about, in the first century, in the world where our Bibles are being written, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and the church is being pioneered, ethnicity was almost never really a factor in people's identity. This was the nature of this enormous empire known as Rome, which ostensibly reduced every idea of, of greater, lesser, better, worse, more quality, less quality people groups. Now, it's very different today. Racism is well and truly alive today, and, and people do, in fact, judge each other tragically based upon ethnicity, but not really in the first century. In the first century, it was all about class, social class, the free class, the slave class, the wealthy class, the powerful class, the lacking power, the margins, those that have been relegated. And as we'd already said, most of these Christians had been drawn out. The gospel had reached them and powerfully granted them grace to trust in Christ from the lowest, most despised, most poor classes. And these people had to realize that. And not only did they have to reckon with that, the gospel has come to them. Most of these Christians had been expelled from these classes to 
To identify as a Christian in the first century meant that you were giving up your identity as belonging to that class or that family or even that group. Higher classes, wealthier classes, looked down upon these lower classes. And even those that belong to the lower classes, if you dared to call Christ Lord, you'd be expelled. So Peter is telling these Christians, once despised, now lacking even the identifiable feature of belonging to those groups, he's telling them they belong to a new social order. They belong to a new collective. This is the identity that Peter gives. Now, having done all of that legwork that we've done together, we can get a sense of the fullness of this. Peter says, you're now a spiritual race. You are now a special ethnicity. In fact, it's a sacred and a royal class. It's a priestly class and it's a princely class. A people that God uniquely claims as his own precious possession. A people who are privileged to call God uniquely theirs. Our faith craves this. Our faith craves this. So much of what prevails as modern Christianity is just simply the repackaging of individualism of the modern world. That's simply all it is. Do you have a personal relationship with God? Now that question is not in and of itself wicked or evil, and it doesn't even have to be misleading. But the truth is, as you know it, everybody already has a personal relationship with God. The question is, is it a relationship of wrath and vengeance and judgment, or is it a relationship of grace? There isn't a person alive on the planet today that isn't related to God in a personal way, one way or another, in Christ or outside of Christ. Our faith craves this communion. And more than that, our faith craves this community. I was recently reading a a rereading, as you already know now, Hudson Taylor biography written by his uh, brother-in-law, Marshall Broomhall. And there's this curious phrase in this. One of the One of the great challenges that many of the early missionary movement pioneers suffered from was loneliness. If you never got a sense of reading that, I'm not even recommending it, but I'll just reference it. The the Scottish Presbyterian James Gilmore went to Mongolia, took 20 plus years to get a single convert, spent most of the time in abject aloneness. It is the most depressing biography you'll ever read. Not recommending it, just referencing it. Hudson Taylor like many of these early missionaries, suffered very much the same kind of struggle. And his brother-in-law, Marshall Broomhall, wrote this. He said, Faith is a spiritual energy of a peculiarly social order. It is sensitive to the presence and absence of sympathy. To be absolutely and unremittently confident of what no one else believes is so difficult as to be well-nigh impossible. While trusting in God is easy when one lives among the trustful. There is something about the community of faith. Now, almost certainly this relates to the gathering. I think I've said that already half a dozen times. But this this idea is much broader and much bigger than that. It's about just belonging. You, You may not be with your Christian brothers and sisters, but you know you belong. You know if you needed help, it's a phone call away. You know that they're praying for you, and you are praying for them. You know that you are bearing each other's burdens and thus fulfilling the law of Christ. We need this. We may deny ourselves at times. 
We may draw back from fellowship at times. We may have seasons of of coldness and dryness and emptiness, but we need this. And the good news of the gospel, the gospel doesn't just save you. It doesn't just take you out of that place of being a child of wrath and a rebel to God and brings you into grace. The gospel indeed does that, but it adds you to this new collective, this new identity, this family of God. Verse 10 says this in 1 Peter 2, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It is about as startling a promotion as anyone could ever experience in any case or scenario. Once you were not a people, but now you're a people. It's almost certain that so many of these these Christians that Peter is writing to are brand new believers, or at least within the first year, two or three of their walk with Christ. It's almost certain that many of them, because they refused to dishonor God, had been expelled from homes and families and villages and community groups for the simplest thing, like, like they refused to forsake church and work. Or the simple things like they refused to worship at a family altar or, or call out that Caesar is Lord. They suffered grimly and gravely expelled some of them from their own immediate families rejected paul gives provision of this to the corinthians saying if an unbelieving spouse is willing to live with you don't divorce in other words it is becoming something of a constant reality that when people are getting saved the marriages are now fraught with with great tension and unbelievers are like i'm not sticking this out i'm not interested Many men and women had lost spouses that way. And so to have them Christians sitting together in the assembly of the saints, gathered in church, calling on the name of the Lord, worshipping together as the people of God, and have the apostle remind them that you may have lost that family, that village, that belonging to that social group or social class, but God has called you to be the member of a spiritual race. God has called you to boast of a new spiritual ethnicity. God is calling you to royalty, priestly royalty, a people that God uniquely claims as his own precious possession. Can you imagine for just a moment how that word precious would have landed on the ears of those first century Christians? You are God's, not just people, that's true, You are God's not just possession. That's true. You are God's precious possession. So that you may, Peter says, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What is this proclamation? The calling of God is always impetus to action. That's the pattern through all of the New Testament. That's the pattern through God's inspired word from cover to cover. That you would realize your identity and be fueled for action for the mission of Christ. The proclamation is the excellencies of him. What else could you say? What else would be upon your lips? You can almost imagine if you could transport yourself back to that first century church. They've just got that epistle from that very apostle. Peter, someone is reading it. And they can't even wait. The congregants can't even hold it in. They have been so overwhelmed with a sense of glory. And then Peter says, you have been called to cry out the excellencies of him 
I don't want to use too much poetic license here this afternoon, but I can almost imagine again that the person reading the epistle maybe had to stop for a second. It's not like people could contain it anymore. This bubbled up and flowed over, this joy, glorious thanksgiving and praise. The excellencies of him, particularly on account of redemption, called you out of darkness. He's called you out of that place of wickedness and rebellion and wrath and the just judgment of our sin into his marvelous light. To tell the age-old story of God's miraculous intervention in redeeming helpless sinners like us. In other words, there are two increasingly strong impulses that should come to every one of us if this is true of our identity. Firstly, praise to God. And secondly, how can I get more people into this new class? How can I reach more sinners? How can I tell more people that live in the waywardness and the deception and the lie of our age? How can I show them Christ and proclaim this good news? Thus being so possessed by the implications of the new birth and the new identity, we cannot help but verbally celebrate the goodness of God. We cannot help, furthermore, not just celebrating the goodness of God, that is certainly true, but proclaiming it to those who are yet to come and receive of this glorious grace. Would you pray with me as we ask God's blessing upon the study of his word together today? Father God, we thank you so much for your goodness toward us. We thank you, God, that you reconcile us back to yourself through no effort of our own, but through Christ. It's his merit, it's his work, it's his goodness, his righteousness, his sacrifice, his obedience, his grace, his mercy, his love. What we had to offer, Lord God, as the words of the great American theologian Jonathan Edwards said, we bring nothing and contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. That's all. We come as beggars and we find the fullness of Christ. We come as poor, inept, weak, and flailing, and we find Christ strong, perfect, matchless in glory, able to save to the uttermost all and any who come to him and call upon his name. We come to Christ. We find him not only saving us on an individual level, but bringing us into this community of faith, this glorious collective, a royal priesthood, Lord God, unto you, a people that are precious to you, a people that are your own possession. Once we were not a people, and now we are people. Once we had not received mercy, and now we stand the recipients of this mercy. Our sins forgiven. Our past has been washed away. Grace has been granted. Our lives are saved. Our eternal glory is secure. Father God, I just want us today to do nothing more than thank you for Jesus. And thank you for these rich and glorious, overwhelmingly precious privileges that are ours because we are in Christ. Heirs and co-heirs with Christ. Receiving the Spirit, which is the down payment, the, the deposit, the safeguard of this assurance of full redemption. We thank you, Lord God, for Jesus. I pray today, even as we begin to meditate on what it means to belong to this new people, 
this new gathering, this new corporate identity. I pray, Lord God, that we would be so overwhelmed with celebration and thanksgiving and praise that we would do nothing other than cry out and proclaim your excellencies. We thank you for this, Lord God. And we would understand that we've been called to this new identity, not to be indolent, not to be fruitless, but to be active in the cause of the advancement of Christ's kingdom. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.